Mark chapter 13, Jesus speaks to his disciples, and we're going to begin in verse 1. I'm going to do something today that I don't typically do. We're going to read this entire chapter for good reason today. Mark chapter 13, it's a long one, okay? But you can follow along on the screen in your Bible app, physical Bible, whatever you have. Then as he went out of the temple, verse 1, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us. When will these things be? Meaning, all of these stones, they're going to be thrown down. When is this going to happen? What will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? When is this going to take place? And Jesus answering them, them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death and to father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures... To the end shall be saved. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand, uh, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, meaning the temple, by the way, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his home, uh, out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor shall ever be. And unless the Lord had shortened these days, those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Verse 21, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, but take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. 
Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, so you also, when you see that these things happen, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. It's actually a very important verse. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping." And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Heavenly Father, speak through this often confusing, very deep passage today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wow. That's all I got to say. Let's pray. No. Um, I'm sure you can tell by those 37 verses that we just read. This is a very, very tough, difficult passage of Scripture. When we planted our church, I became comfortable. I I trained myself to become comfortable saying this. We are not the church for everybody. But I came comfortable. There were many people who would come, church plant, they would come and visit, and then you never see them again. I had to get used to that. It really hurt when I came like two, three, four times, and then I never came back. I'm like, man. So it wasn't just the uh, it wasn't just the terrible gym, all right. But I had to I had to become okay with that, and then I also had to become okay with there are some people who should not, who won't fit in our church. I just want to say this kind of as an overview. One of the people who don't fit in our church are people that I say they have a pet doctrine, one pet doctrine. Let me give you an example. They have a pet doctrine of a Bible version. It's this Bible version or nothing else. And that's what they want to talk about all the time. And everything revolves around it and comes to centers back around it. You're probably not a good fit at our church. You have a pet doctrine. Let me give you another one. Some of your, maybe you can think about shit like your grandparents. Because a lot of the older generation was this. Prophecy. Prophecy. Everything was about Prophecy. Everything was about the end times. You bought all the books. You got the guy on TV scamming you out of your money. And you bought all of his DVDs. And everything was in view in light of prophecy. And every time there was a new nation who had a quarrel with another nation, you're like, here it comes. I told you, it's time. We're going up. Like, That's another one. Reformed theology, Calvinism. Everything's got to go and run through this one specific thing. And I can't view anything outside of the lens of this one pet doctrine. We're probably not the church for people who say, this is my pet doctrine. And that's all I'm really concerned about. Okay, So I say that because this is a passage when you begin to think of prophecy. And you begin to think of what do these things mean. By the way, is the title of the sermon. That people can take this and they can really run with it. 
And my job today is not to tell you what you should believe about what this all means. How many of you understand there's a lot in there? And if I can be really honest with you as your lead pastor, there's a lot in there that I'm not going to be able to tell you specifically 100% that that is what that exactly means. Okay, this book is inexhaustible. And there are things in this book that make you scratch your head. Remember, the disciples were with him and they were scratching their head. They were physically with him. So my job today is not to convince you of anything. My job today is to help you understand this chapter. My job today is to present you some things that this chapter means, this chapter can mean, and then my job today at the end is to practically apply it to our lives. Are we good with that? Because I want to practically apply it to our lives. Here we go. Number one, the significance of the temple. Okay, the significance of the temple. What was going on in the world? What was going on in the life of the children of Israel? What was Jesus referring to? Well, at the very beginning of the chapter, he mentions as they're, as they're sitting across from the temple that not one of these stones will be left. They're going to all crumble and they're going to all fall. So Jesus was specifically speaking straight to those disciples about the temple. Okay, Now, let's think about the temple. Let's go all the way back. Before the temple, there was the tabernacle. There was the Ark of the Covenant. There was the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. And any time, all, all of those things kind of together, if you group them all together, I want us to understand this morning the significance of that was that a holy God wanted to dwell with his unholy people. A holy God wanted to dwell with his unholy people. So his unholy children of Israel, uh, Israelites were in the wilderness and in the desert and he would come down in that cloud and he would dwell with them. And his presence was there. And he would move them from place to place. You see, the significance of the temple, the significance of the Ark of the Covenant, the significance of the tabernacle, all of those things, while they are unique in their own right, the overarching theme is God wanted a place to dwell with his people. You remember when it was perfect? You remember in the Garden of Eden, how did God dwell with his people? You remember before sin? He literally came down in the cool of the day. And he walked with Adam and Eve. You see, God has always wanted fellowship with his people. And so sin happened and that became a little different. Some of the decrees that were made because of the sin of Adam and Eve. But the Ark of the Covenant, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. You remember Moses would go into the tent of meeting and he would hear from God on behalf of the people and he would present some things to God on behalf of the people. And you remember I, I, there was a, a time there where Joshua, and I'm going to get all the history where Joshua would go with him. And he would stand outside the tent while Moses was in the tent. And Moses would get finished and he would leave and go to the people. And the Bible says that Joshua would stick around for a little while. He would stay around that tent of meeting because he, he just wanted to be near the presence of the Lord. We then have the first temple. If you remember, and I'm not here to give you a Sunday school lesson this morning, but if you remember the first temple, it was not built by David, the man after God's own heart, the giant killer. David collected supplies for the temple, but the first temple was built by a man named Solomon, his son, the richest and wisest man to ever live. I debate that because he had a thousand wives and girlfriends. I'm not sure how wise that is. 
But, uh, but he did. He was very capable of writing Song of Solomon. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Poor guy. But Solomon's temple was completed 957 years before Christ, 957 B.C., and it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Came and destroyed it in 586, and so not too long after. And then we preached through the book of Nehemiah, but if you rewind just a tad from Nehemiah, Nehemiah, they built the wall. In Ezra, they built the temple, again, right before that. Zerubbabel came and he built the temple. In the book of Ezra, it was completed in 515 B.C. And it's this temple, the, the temple of Zerubbabel, that Jesus is talking about. It is that temple. That is the place where people would go and they would make their sacrifices. That is the place where people would go and they would meet with the high priest. And the high priest would, would call out to God on their behalf as, as their intercessor. And, and, and where they would go to, to find forgiveness for their sins. It is literally the place where God, a holy God, would dwell with unholy people. It is that temple, Zerubbabel's temple, the temple that, that Ezra spoke about and wrote about, the temple that Nehemiah led the people back from Babylon. By the way, when they came from Babylon, that was hundreds of miles of a journey to where they would come. Pretty incredible. They came and they rebuilt that wall. You remember? They started the wall, then they stopped, then they restarted the wall, and finally completed it. It's that temple that Jesus is standing on and if you can think about this, especially the disciples, but all throughout the history of the children of Israel, there was always that place. Whether it was the cloud, whether it was the tabernacle, whether it was more specifically the Ark of the Covenant that they would take with them, whether it was the first temple, Solomon's temple, or whether it was this temple here. For the known history of the Israelites, there had been a place. And every Israelite knew this is where we meet God. This is where God and His holiness and man and His humanity collide. That's where they meet. And for the entire history of the children of Israel, that had been the case. So, secondly, this morning, I want us to see the significance of the destruction of this temple. The significance of the destruction of this temple. What was Jesus trying to tell them? What was Jesus trying to communicate to his disciples? Remember, it's always been about a holy God dwelling with his unholy people. God had dwelled with his people all the way from the cloud. All the way from the Garden of Eden, really. All the way to the cloud, to the tabernacle, to the Ark of the Covenant, to the Tent of Meeting, to the tabernacle, to the, to the temple. God had always met with his people. And then something amazing happened. The Old Testament ended. Remember Malachi and the book of Nehemiah? We ended the Old Testament. 400 years of silence. What happens? Emmanuel. God, in the form of Jesus... Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus comes. This temple is still in existence. The temple is still there all the time. While Jesus is 33 and a half years, he's on this earth. We're now in the last week of that 33 and a half years. 
Jesus has been on this earth for 30 years. There's been a temple there. And remember, there was, we've, just, we've learned about it 40, in 40 sermons. There was this rift between all the leaders in the temple and Jesus. All the leaders of, of, of the, the old school thought process and the Old Testament way of doing things and Jesus. There was constant struggle and constant battle. And so it's very significant that Jesus is telling them, hey, listen, this temple that's been here for hundreds of years, this temple that, that Zerubbabel built and that Ezra wrote about and that Nehemiah put around uh, the, the wall around, that temple, that temple is going to be destroyed. That temple is no longer going to be here. And I believe the question that the disciples would have had at that moment was, okay, well, then who's going to rebuild the next temple? Is it going to be in the same place? Who's going to be the leader of Israel at that point? Jesus, you're the leader, right? Aren't you the leader of the nation of Israel? Are you going to rebuild that temple? That would have been the natural question. But Jesus would be leaving them. And this is very important this morning, and listen to this. Not only would Jesus be physically leaving them, but he would be signifying that temple worship was no longer the answer. That temple worship, the temple was no longer going to be the place where a holy God would come down and dwell with his unholy people. Jesus had a greater plan. And it was going to turn everything that the children of Israel ever knew upside down. You know what his plan was? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, check it out. Do you not know that your... Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's right. What Jesus was saying is something so crazy. It's so out there. He was literally saying, this temple that's got gold and it's got glass and it's beautiful, This temple is going to crumble, and this is no longer going to be where my presence resides. My presence is going to reside in you. What had been in the tabernacle, and what had been in the cloud, and what had been in the tent of meeting, and what had been in the ark of the covenant, what had been in the tabernacle, what had been in the old temple, all of that glory and all that beauty that, remember, only the high priest could walk in at certain times in the Holy of Holies. All that had to go through all of the, 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 uh, uh, the, the requirements in order to walk into that room. All of those things, all of that glory, Jesus says, is going to reside in you. It was extremely significant. Those of us who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior... In our bodies and in our spirits, a holy God dwells in his unholy people. You can see why this was so significant. We have his spirit. And I'm not here today to preach on the Holy Spirit, even though this would be a perfect segue into it, wouldn't it? But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses. Listen, it was extremely important. Jesus was saying that you no longer have to go to a place to worship. What was he saying? He was saying that we are still commanded to worship him, but not in this physical temple. You and I do not have to travel every year to Jerusalem 
to keep those laws and to worship at that temple. No, he is saying he would like to see us and he wants his followers to worship him in spirit and in truth. We are literally to worship him with everything in our being. With everything that we are, with everything that we believe, with everything that we say, with everything that we do, we are to worship Jesus. We are the temple. So what was going to happen? Jesus was going to leave. Acts chapter 1, he was going to ascend. He was not coming back immediately, even though they stood there and waited for him. Like he was coming back in like 30 seconds. He was not coming back. Not then. And he hasn't yet. And then the temple, the Roman Empire comes in and destroys this temple. And there was no plan, there is no plan for this temple to be rebuilt. Pause. Depending on your view of prophecy. There is or there isn't. I believe there is, but anyway. There's no specific plan outlined in scripture of this person is going to rebuild this temple. We are now the temple. And you know what he wanted his disciples to do? When that wall crumbled, when that temple fell, you know what he wanted? He wanted them to say, okay, Jesus was right. He told us this was going to happen. We are now the temple. We are now the place. This is where the Holy God resides. This is our, this is our time. So then the question is, thirdly this morning, is it then or is it then and again? Those of you that were in New Testament 1 Monday night, if you were in New Testament 1 Monday night, I believe this was briefly gone over at the very end. So the question is, out of everything this text that we read, 37 verses, it says a whole lot in this text. A whole lot that we're not going to get into. But what do we know? What do we know for sure? We know that Jesus took significant time out of Passion Week to speak to his disciples about this. We know that. That's a fact. That's not a debate. That is a fact. We know that Jesus was talking to his disciples about the actual physical temple that was going to be destroyed by the Roman Empire in AD 70. We do know that. I mean, he literally was looking at the temple, saying, these rocks right here are going to all crumble. So we know that for sure. And to be honest with you, I, I told you I was going to present a couple of views. There are some people who stop there and say that that is all this text is referring to. And to be quite honest with you, some of the things that you read in there about it, the uh, dark, there was total darkness. There are historians, Josephus, not your favorite theologian, Bocephus, but Josephus, uh, who wrote about a lot of the things that took place back in those days. Um, he even writes about when the temple fell in AD 70, there was so much dust that it was like there was no sun or moon for 24 hours. Okay, so a lot of these things that you're thinking like, I know that's coming up soon. No, a lot of these things happened. The, abomina the abomination of desolation, someone standing in the temple and defiling the temple and blaspheming in the temple. There were, there were reports and historical reports that when the Roman Empire came in, that's exactly what their leaders did. They stood in the temple and they blasphemed the name of Jesus. When they... So there are some people who believe that this text was only talking to those disciples about that day. And those, those, that may be a couple decades to take place between that time and the time the temple actually was destroyed. 
So in that context, there are some who believe it was just for then. Okay, just for then. But others, and I would, I would find myself in the second category, I believe. I, I would. Many believe that this was not only then, but this would be then and again. There are, some, there are some people like myself who believe that not only was Jesus specifically talking to his disciples about that temple that was going to be destroyed that they were looking at, but Jesus was also using this as a prophetic statement to here's what's going to take place in the end times. This is what is going to take place in the last days. So I take the stance of he was not only, he was speaking about then, but he was also speaking about what we will experience again. Now, you can disagree with that, and we can be friends. But may I just say this? If we disagree about that, and you believe that we were only talking about it back then, you've got some serious answer, questions to answer about, the, about Israel. You have some serious questions to answer about the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel. There's a lot of questions that you have to answer that are very difficult to answer. That's okay. You can answer them. There are some that do. People smarter than me believe differently. People smarter than me believe the same. It's all good. All that to say... This was a powerful, important word. And even if we take it in context of just then, Jesus was saying something very important. And I want to close this morning with some practical applications. Number one, God wants a real relationship with you. That is a practical application that we can take from this text. You say, how? Because from the beginning of time, he has wanted communion and fellowship with his creation. From the, the dirt paths in the Garden of Eden, to the cloud, to the fire, to the tent of meeting, to the Ark of the Covenant, to the tabernacle, to Solomon's temple, to Zerubbabel's temple. God wants a personal relationship with you. He wants to dwell with you. That's very important for us to understand. Even when sin ruined relationships, even when Adam and Eve's sin put that gap in between there, even when our sin sometimes seems to tear away at that relationship, God pursues us. And he pursues us. And even when the children of Israel complained, and even when they murmured, and even when they said, take us back into captivity in Egypt, and even when they rejected even when they gave themselves over to idols, even when God was giving the law, the Ten Commandments, to Moses up on the mountain, even while he was doing that, the, one of the first two commandments is that they should not make any graven image, no idol worship. And what were they doing? As he was saying it, what were they doing? They were giving Aaron all their gold so that Aaron could make them an idol to worship. Even through that, God pursued a relationship with his people. And today, he is pursuing a relationship with you. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. And secondly, a practical application this morning is we must understand that God's presence now resides in his followers. Listen, the Holy Spirit is as much God as God the Father the Holy Spirit is as much God as Jesus Christ who died on the cross. And the Holy Spirit 
resides in you. And so a holy God resides in an unholy person by a spirit this morning. And his Holy Spirit lives in you. And his Holy Spirit wants to, to work in your life. And he wants to speak to you. And he wants to lead you. And he wants to guide you. And when you're acting like an idiot to your spouse, he wants to shut you up. Okay? I saw this the other day. The Holy Spirit does, doesn't just make you stand up and dance. Sometimes he makes you sit down and shut up. <laughs> All right? That's, that's good. He does that to me a lot. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's the one that when we're singing, oh, praise the name. And you're like, I won't raise this way. I ain't raising my hands. I ain't raising this way. This ain't what I do. The Holy Spirit's the one that's kind of pushing at your elbows. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one when you walk out to your car today to get in your car and you see that person walking their dog down the sidewalk. Instead of just ignoring her, you say, hey, how are you? Hey, listen, I see you walking. Your dog, don't want to take up your time. But listen, we meet here every Sunday at 10 o'clock. We'd, we'd love to connect with you. Can we serve you in any way? Anything we can pray, pray for you about? I mean, we, we literally have people in our church because of things like that. Because someone sitting on this end of the row, Nate Mill, spoke to someone sitting on that end of the row when Kathy was out there with her pets. The Holy Spirit's the one who says, hey, I know you're an introvert, but you can go speak to someone. Hey, listen, the Holy Spirit says, hey, I know you're an extrovert and you're over the top, so why don't you gear it back down a little bit, Skippy, and just speak to someone and leave it at that. That's the Holy Spirit. And he resides in you. His presence is with you. He wants to, to know you and to be known in and through you. Thirdly, this is important. This, I believe this is extremely biblical. God's followers must live with the confidence that his presence resides in them. It's not just enough to say I intellectually acknowledge that God's Holy Spirit, because of these specific verses, theologically, I understand that Jesus and God reside in me through the Holy Spirit. No, no. There's a confidence that comes with that. And it's not a self-confidence. It's not a prideful confidence. It's a humble confidence. It's a God-centered confidence that says, man, when we've got a face fill in the blank, I've got the Spirit with me. When I had this decision to make, this, this important decision of a good thing and a good thing, and I don't know which way to go, I've got his spirit to guide me. I've got his spirit to lead me. There's a confidence there. Hey, I'm a parent of a middle schooler, a girl. I need the Holy Spirit. Hey, Dad, speak up. Hey, Dad, shut up. I need to listen to both of those. I'm a husband. I'm a pastor and elder in this church. I need the confidence of, God, you put it in my heart to partner with these ministries, and we're moving forward. God, you put it in my heart to take on this renovation. God, help. I believe that was the Holy Spirit. We are moving forward. We're doing it. Because there's a confidence that comes with understanding that God resides in you. A lot of the debate about this chapter hinges on prophecy. 
the things to come. All the things, if you paid attention to when we read, a lot of those things you've, you know are, are generally attributed to prophecy and things in the book of Revelation and things that will happen in the future or could be happening even as we speak. But here's what I want us to know, lastly. Jesus is coming back. And his followers should be eagerly anticipating it. There will be a day when it's not just the Spirit of God dwelling with us, but we are able to see him face to face. We're able to see him with nothing between. Jesus is returning. Another thing we know is no man knows the hour, no man knows the day, no man knows the time. He is returning, and we should be eagerly anticipating it. I remember when I was a kid, especially because I was, only, I was 19 years old before I truly professed Christ as my Savior. So I remember times as a kid, a teenager, where I was like, Jesus, you better not come back yet, man. I don't know what's going on in my heart right now. I'd also like to honor you, but I'd also like to get married, if you know what I'm saying. Um, I would like to do these things in life. I would like, to, and I'm like, just don't. I'm not old, but I now understand why I hear the old saints go, man, I, I wish Jesus would come back today. I wish he'd come back to, the more we live our lives, the more we understand that we're really, if we're truly followers of Jesus, we're living for another world. We're living for eternity. Hey, the trials of this life will be over. And whether Jesus comes back at this point on your prophetic calendar or at this point on your prophetic calendar, one thing we know for sure, he is coming back. He is coming back. Young people, don't let that scare you. Don't let it scare you. Let it encourage us. May we anticipate it. What does the Bible instruct us to say about his coming? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Listen, I did not, when I say that I did not scratch the surface of the depth of this chapter, I did not scratch the surface of the depth of, the depth of this chapter. We are not going back to it. Take a deep breath. We're moving on to the next text, next Sunday. What I wanted to do today and what I hope that we did today was that you understand the context of why, that, why Jesus said the things that he said, what was going on in the world around them, why that was necessary today. And then I pray that we get some encouragement from some practical applications. Hey, listen, what does all this mean? You know what it means? It means God wants to dwell with you. He is in his spirit. Jesus is coming back. I can't wait. Heavenly Father, in a passage and a text that can become cumbersome can be the oftentimes the cause of debates within the church I pray that we unify today in the things that we know we know this we know Jesus we know that you've always wanted to dwell with your people and you've always made a way to dwell with your people Jesus we know that when that temple was destroyed in just 70 years after we know after AD 70, we know the temple resides. We are the temple. That the Spirit resides in us. And that the presence of God res resides in 
me. And the presence of God resides in every single follower of Jesus. I thank you so much for that reality. God, if there's someone here today who doesn't know you as Savior, they've never experienced your presence in their heart and in their life, I pray that today be the day that they reject all others and put their faith and trust wholly and 100% on you, Jesus. Not in any sort of church attendance or membership, not any sort of good work or good deed that they perform, not any sort of humanitarian work that they may do, not any sort of kindness that they may bestow upon others, but in the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ, who came and lived the perfect sinless life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve to die. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again in victory. And he is coming back. That Jesus wants to save your soul today. If you've never given your heart and your life to Jesus, may today be that day. I'm going to ask you to do something for me this morning. If that's you and you feel the Holy Spirit tugging at you or you feel something saying you need to give your heart to Jesus, I'm going to ask you after the service today to just come find me. Tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, can we talk? And I'd love to take you into my office. I'd love to open up God's word and show you what Jesus says about how much he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. I pray today as followers of Jesus in this room that we were encouraged by this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at keystonerdu.church. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media and outreach ministries at Keystone, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Durham and around the world.